0: Cain, Abel was like his sheep, holding that same flat, complacent gaze, the thick curls low on the forehead, a voice like the creak of new shoes when he prayed. The prayers were invariably answered, his flocks fattened, and the wool fetched top price. His warts disappeared overnight. His advice to his brother, Cain, was invariably excellent. Cain took it about as long as he could and then let him have it with his pitchfork one afternoon when they were out tedding hay. When God asked Cain where Abel was, Cain said, I don't know which didn't fool God for a minute, and, am I my brother's keeper? Which didn't even rate an answer. Even so, God let the crime be its own punishment instead of trying to think up anything worse. With no stomach for haying that field anymore, Cain took up traveling instead, and lived in continual fear that he'd be spotted as a fratricide and lynched. When he complained to God about this, God gave him some kind of severe facial twitch that marked him as the sort of man you don't kick because he's down already, and thus ensured him a long life in which to remember That last incredulous bleat, the glazing over of that flat, complacent gaze. The justice and mercy of God have seldom been so artfully combined in a single act.
1: From the Gospel of John, chapter 9. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back. He was able to see. Here ends the reading from the Gospel of John.
2: I'm a little bit overwhelmed with Cain and David (laughs) and Jesus. One of the first classes I took when I was a student here at Cal Lutheran in 1973 was French 101, taught by Karen Renick, who was the faculty person who was on hand when I had picked out classes to take that first semester. We went to the old administration hall sometime during the summer. That's how I ended up in French 101. There were two men students in that class. The others were all women. I'm not sure exactly how to tell this story right, but let me say that I must have liked that there was a kind of a built-in audience in that class because I was much cleverer then than I am now. And as it turned out, probably too clever for my own good. The other guy, Jim, was not as intent as I was upon being clever. He was instead concentrating on learning how to speak French. (laughs) Thinking back on it now, I was clever too many times at Jim's expense. Can you figure out how this works? You know how language classes go, lots of talking, lots of things to get wrong. Am I right? I think Jim reminded me of my older brother, Ron, who, as you can imagine, served first as a role model for me in my early years, and then in later years, increasingly, as a rival. Jim was a great surrogate rival. A year or more went by. I hadn't known really that Jim had dropped out of CLU, CLC. So many things changed after that first year here. But later, he turned to campus with another former student. Turned out that they had both signed up for the Marines. And they were in dress uniform, straight-backed, formal, composed, handsome. They looked really good. There was some kind of reception up at the big steps over there by what used to be called Nigreen. Is it still called Nigreen? That's the advertisement center I've noticed now that I'm back on campus. I came up to say hi to Jim and congratulations. Turned out he hadn't forgotten French class. (laughs) I don't think I've, I don't know if I've told anybody this, but you're going to be the first to hear. In my reconstructed memory, he said something like, in measured tones, Hello, Brian. You know that in basic training, every time I had to punch or hit something, I pictured your face. That was the end of the conversation. I walked away later much later I thought I might have responded well if that is a thank you then you're welcome (laughs) but it was too late to say I'm sorry I tell you this story because it raises the dark side of purpose there are all things that we do well and I know that each and every one of you here has some extra special gifts Like my son Philip, when he comes over to eat with Mary and me, and we fix something for dinner that is really tasty, he says, This is restaurant quality. (laughs) I know you all have some restaurant quality talents that are going to help you serve some mighty fine purposes. But since I'm the one who's starting out the Lent portion of this series, which I thought was very beautifully done so far, a time when we tend to look inwardly and become introspective for a bit, I ask, what does God do with the unsavory bits in our personalities? What purpose do they serve, the ones that are not on purpose? I was an enthralled eighth grader reading Lord of the Rings, could not figure out why J.R.R. Tolkien would put in the character of Gollum. Slimy in real and metaphorical senses, a seeming anti-hero as creepy in print as he was later in film, casting a shadow on whatever scene he was in. But is there anyone here who needs to be warned of a spoiler alert? (laughs) He is absolutely essential to the resolution of the major conflict in the trilogy. Maybe as important as Frodo or Gandalf or Strider in his final fiery death. Do you suppose he ends up going to Middle-earth heaven? Did his life serve a redeemable purpose? The Christian Gospels were strained for us through a period of time when they were written down in papyrus, all in lowercase Greek letters called unseals and squished together without any spaces between the words to conserve the valuable papyri. Therefore we were they were cleared of most of the nuance that might have been expressed by Jesus or anyone else's tone of voice or rhythm or hesitation. My point is that in the story of the gospel of John about the man born blind when the disciples asked Jesus who had sinned this man or his parents such that he would have this burden placed on him, and it kind of hard, it's hard for me to consider what kind of sin the man might have committed when he was in utero. Jesus might have answered this way. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents but and he took a time to figure out what he was going to say next that the works of God might be made manifest in him. That's a good answer. And then he put the spit and clay on the man's eyes, etc. The whole rest of the chapter is spent on other people trying to figure out the why and the what and the who and the wherefore of the healing. But it seems that as far as Jesus was concerned, It was just a healing. I don't know why I was a clever pissant in my earlier days. Some of it remains. And I suspect it was because of some defect either in myself or in my parents. God bless them. Some of you here know my parents. Or maybe I can blame my older brother. the why about it is imponderable. But the fact remains that God's purpose in my case and in the case of the man born blind and perhaps even in your case, that the reason is that we might become healed and come to peace. And when we become healed of the things that hurt us and others, then we might have a better chance of our restaurant quality talents serving even higher purposes. Amen.